welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today, we will be answering the bloody stupid question, how can you make constructivism amount to more than a hill of beans? Which, now I think about it, I probably should have read in a cowboy accent, how can you make constructivism amount to more than a hill of beans? (laughs) I am Mike Collins. I'm a learning designer at The Open University, and I am imposter syndrome incarnate. And joining me as ever today, we have... I'm Mark Childs, and and I'm a man with a new microphone stand. Ooh. Ooh. That's actually from Casablanca in a cowboy movie. Hill of Beans, don't add to a more than a hill of beans in this big, crazy world. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I've only, I, I actually I saw Casablanca for the first time last year and I was actually blown away. I thought it was incredible. It's oh, amazing. We should do one, an episode on Casablanca sometime. Oh, well, we mentioned uh, Bob McKee really briefly in the Hero's Journey one, and uh, he did a really good analysis of Casablanca. That's where a lot of his um, theories about story structure are actually based on. He's on Casablanca. So, yeah, it would be a good one. And we're off topic already. <laughs> <laughs> so back to the topic, which okay. is how can you make constructivism amount to more than a hill of beans? Well, to break down that question, we are going to first look at beans, or more precisely, lack of at Bean Dad, Bean Dad Gate. If you've not heard this Twitter story, we'll get into it in a bit. Uh, we will also be looking at constructivism, what it is, how it works, what you've got to do to make it work, and a bit of the critical pedagogy around it. And just underneath this, there's a fun little undertone. We're going to be talking about the pedagogy of starving children. So without any further ado, let's go into part one of the show and break down the components of our question. Part one, the question. So shall we start just by talking about Bean Dad? What's Bean Dad? Well, it's, I had, I was, I had second thoughts about this as a topic because um, this raised a lot of interesting questions for me about constructivism. And a lot of the arguments around what this guy was doing were based around constructivism. So when you said, what's your burning issue that we could talk about this time, that's what I went to. But then I was thinking, it's not actually, you know, normally we do pop culture and it's normally fun. And this is actually quite a sad story that we're basing it on. And it was like, well, let's be authentic about this, where these, this is where the ideas came from, but also acknowledge the fact that we're doing something a bit different this time, which is talking about a real person that something really quite horrible happened to. Yeah, well, it's, I guess it's also kind of gone into the meme space as well, though, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it has. I'm a yeah. bit of a Twitter meme. And and so we, we're kind of, it's sort of topical, but also it could be seen as being maybe slightly exploitative. So anyway, caution around that. But well, I, I think it's worth mentioning as well that this is happening um, in the UK against the backdrop of um, somewhat iffy government policies around. Um, school-aged children not receiving um free lunches yeah they used to get they used to have a 30 pound limit and then instead of giving them 30 pounds to buy stuff they hired one of their mates to provide 30 pounds worth of food and of course it's not and it's it's a derogatory amount and it's yeah so slightly darker this 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 time but you know i think it's all topical and i think it's worth talking about because it does raise some really interesting um things so um Bean Dad, could you give us a summary of what Bean Dad is? Oh well, okay. So this was somebody who on Twitter was saying that his daughter—he was doing a jigsaw puzzle, which apparently was really important to him—and his daughter came up to him and asked him if he she could have some lunch, and he was on this thing said, "Well, I saw this as a very useful teaching moment," and um, so instead of actually getting his kids some beans, nine-year-old daughter. He said, well, let's get the tin opener. He called it a can opener because it's in the US. But let's get the tin opener out and and I'll show you how the bits of the tin opener work. And let's see if you can work how to open this tin of beans. And she fumbled around with it and it didn't really work. And so then he went back to his jigsaw puzzle and left her to it. And this went on, on and off for about six hours <laughs> and then i can't remember how it was all resolved i know you looked at the, the twitter re- um, story more recently than i did yeah so i mean interestingly the story itself um, and the account have been deleted uh because um i think the way that he originally posted it as this kind of this long stream of stuff i think mm-hmm. he thought it was quite a positive story um and then uh yes the uh, the zeitgeist reaction to it was uh significantly less positive but yes, I think it ended with eventually the kids started getting the idea of how it worked, but it turns out the can opener was old and, and knackered from where it Oh, really? So it didn't the learning work anyway? Well, I think that the tin itself had been much abused during the learning uh, process. Oh, okay. 
So, so it made the entire exercise uh, significantly more difficult than it needed to be. Yeah. I mean, I started off thinking, oh, that's, I think it's very, it's one of the difficult things about being a parent is that you act a lot of the time out of fear for your kid. So I think you tend to be worried that they're not going to be functional human beings and that you need to do everything you can to ensure that they are functional human beings. And I have actually had to show somebody how to use a tin opener uh, when I was in my late 20s and she was a few years older than me and she she was we were sharing a house and she was going, well, where's the, uh, I, can't, I can't open the tin of beans and a tin. And I said, well, there's a tin opener. And she said, oh, I can't use that. I've never used one of these before. So she was nearly 30 and I never used a tin opener before. And I'm going, well, you know, and once I'd got over the shock and of like the fact that she hadn't used it and it was like well okay you do this and you do that and she just resented the fact that i had a tin opener that she she didn't know how to operate and i i could see somebody thinking i don't want my kid to be somebody that just gives up and resents new technology so much that they don't want to even try but then she's only nine and then he waited six it was six hours this was going on for uh, and then also when people looked at his Twitter feed, it realized it was quite anti-Semitic and there was racism things in there and all this sort of stuff. And I think this is why the whole feed got deleted. But why it was interesting for me as well was that, okay, this is a teaching moment that failed, but also some of the responses to it, I saw a po- somebody had posted uh, a paper by Paul Kirshner on um, minimal guidance, and he saw this was being an, a validation of this particular paper. And of course, Paul Kirshner is one of the main reasons we have a, a podcast here because the podcast kind of the originally came out of some of the uh, reading, reading. It was a reading group about Paul Kirshner and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And yeah. anyway, um, so, um, so I thought that's interesting. So I read the paper and I thought, well, I agree, disagree and all that sort of thing. And then somebody else res- uh, responded to this particular incident with the video of his own daughter who was six sitting in the back of the car saying she was hungry and him giving her a can opener saying well there you go and she looks at it waves it around and says indistinctly the first time she says oh what was that and then the second time she says it really clearly you fucking clown (laughs) (laughs) i thought that okay this kid has actually learned to interrogate and dismiss somebody else's pedagogical style that's what's going on here this is critical pedagogy and so that opened up some quite interesting interesting discussions as well so i think that's why i wanted to talk about this particular incident because although the, the it's quite bleak to start off with it comes into exploring lots of issues around education around um what was a constructivist approach but also you know where critical pedagogy could maybe have informed that whole process a bit more as well so that's where yeah. we're going with that so um, uh, for those who weren't able to, uh, who sort of uh, maybe aren't on Twitter or didn't see the thread uh, before the account was deleted, there's going to be a full transcript of it in the show notes, which you, uh, I encourage you to take a look through because it's, oh, oh, it's a bit of a, a tooth-sucking cringer. Um, well, also a bit of a trigger warning about it because I think also in our conversations we've had, it caused us to reflect on how we were taught in the home about using stuff as well. And I think that's quite interesting in that I think everybody has their own similar story in some sort of way. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, anybody, uh, there's the whole, there's the online meme of uh, holding the flashlight for your dad while he's uh, fixing the car and how that's a traumatic event. <laughs> I, my, my, per, my personal uh, memory is being given the roadmap when we were driving somewhere a couple of times and being told to navigate us. I had no idea where we were in the world. That was horrendous. I mean, for me, it, it was the other extreme, which is that, I mean, well, okay, I, <laughs> the, the, the reason why I brought up the microphone stand is that I had to buy two of them because I messed up putting the first one together so badly. I thought I'd missed, I thought I'd, I'd damaged it and I hadn't, but it was like, it's just a microphone stand. I'll tell people I'm borderline dyspraxic, but if my wife's within earshot, she will go, borderline. <laughs> um and so i could imagine for i mean i never got taught anything because i would start to do it and i would be so bad at it that my dad would just jump in and do it for me so a lot of the basic things i never learned to do as a kid and i can imagine how as a parent you see your son who's apparently intelligent completely failing to do something the levels of frustration would be so overwhelming that you would have to do it for them but again that's not great instruction either because then you know at the other extreme you never learn anything 
Mm, definitely. So, um, so yeah. So, and again, now I, I wouldn't dare put up a shelf or, <laughs> or put up a curtain rail <laughs> because, you know, because I just think, oh, I would mess that up because I guess I've never learned the basics and it's always easier to get somebody else to do it when you can't do those basic things. So, I mean, um, I guess this is a nice point then to transition because I suppose this, uh, one of the reasons this is a, a, an interesting real life case study, uh, learning in the home, learning in the family, situative learning? Um, would it be situative uh, no, learning? situative would be if you had a bunch of people getting together to talk about how do we get this tin opener to work? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, yes, yeah, so, experiential. Uh, real life learning. experiential, experiential, yeah. yeah, real life learning, uh, experiential mm. learning. But in in particular, we're going to be focusing on um, constructivism mm-hmm. for uh, for this particular episode. So we've touched on constructivism a couple of times before. My kind of uh, back of the fag packet understanding of it is that it is uh, sort of the the learning of building connections, constructing connections, and schema of understanding in your head to kind of uh, navigate um navigate the world and your learning but mark you have read up on this recently can you give a better <laughs> probably more accurate description of that no that's that's basically it the idea is that you um that in order to learn things you basically uh you have all this sort of stuff in your long-term memory these are the autonomic things these are the things you can draw on all the time and that in order to build on that you explore a lot through uh, trying things in your working memory, you add to those models, those deeper learning by trying things out. And that as a teacher, what you're, what you need to do is to imagine that your lear- your, your learner is constructing their own knowledge and adding to their own construction of uh, an understanding of the world. So rather than it, so it's basically it's another word for student centered in a lot of ways, and it falls in that same category, that same continent that we use that. That analogy before we need to go back to uh, that at some point. That whole lot of experiential learning, problem-based learning, student-centered learning, all those sorts of things. It's trying to get into the heads of the students and where they are and what you need to add to their understanding in order to get them to the next step. Hmm. And it's 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 a makes a case as well, or is part of the case for why it's really important to do teaching that's relevant to people. And or or uh, making it relevant to them and their lives in the situation on the basis that it allows them to form connections between the teaching and their experience, and therefore strengthen those connections and and build that into deeper understandings. Yeah, and um, I think going back to the whole Paul Kirshner thing, and one of the thing, early things that got us to talk about pedagogy, just the two of us, was no, it was an interview with Paul Kirshner that was talking about why constructivism is a zombie that refuses to die. Part of where he's coming from with that is he's a neurologist, and so his interest is in where the way brain works and about behaviorism and the fact that you can see these things kind of creating little sparks in the brain or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a neurologist. But, um, uh, and constructivism doesn't have that same sort of biological, neurological base to it. It's From a lot of perspectives, it's simply a story observing how students learn and trying to replicate that again and again in the classroom, but without this sort of really firm biological base to it. I've used constructivism in classes and getting students to make stuff and do their own thing and learn in their own by exploring things themselves rather than being instructed every step of the way and by that instruction being tested. So a lot more open-ended. And it works. It's more engaging. It's fun. Um, the students then can work with each other. The, yeah, we, have... um, we did this in our problem-based learning episode. Mm, oh, okay. Well, yes. Yeah. So it's, again, it's a good example of problem-based learning is problem-based learning and constructivism tend to get used interchangeably. It's more, I think constructivism is more fundamental than that because it's a set of stories or th- even if you like theories uh, about why problem-based learning works and problem-based learning is then the approach that builds on constructivism as a kind of set of principles. So yes, yeah, so I think that's that's kind of where I why I think it's it's it has validity to it is because when you do put into practice, when you give the students the sense of building on their own understanding, then um, it's more engaging, and I think it gets embedded. And going back to what uh, this paper, which uh, was 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 uh, tweeted in response to this Bean Dad story. Is that also be in the uh, the show notes? Yeah, because it's a, it's an interesting one, and and actually, I might even I'll probably maybe uh, link to the up, 
uh, okay, it's behind a paywall, <laughs> so we can't upload the the. We can't. We can do a link to it, but you would have to be in a an institution to be able to access it. <laughs> but I, I will put a quote in there, which is where <laughs> I know it's annoying, isn't so, it? So I was say, when you say you have to be in an institution. My brain doesn't go to academic institution. Oh, it goes okay. to a person being wrapped up in a padded room. Well, it's not that big a difference, really, is it? I mean, you know, I mean, we've worked in HE long enough to know that the distinction's not that strong one. Oh. Yeah, So, but there's a line in that which, uh, where he says that constructivism actually has validity to it, that the idea that this is what you're doing, that you are, and all the stuff about working memory and long-term memory is, you know, he mentions all this in the paper, is that its constructivism does work? That there's you know the observations that it does work. That as an uh, as a um, description of how people are learning, it's a valid description. But his his argument against it, what this paper's completely arguing against all the way through, is the idea of constructivism then leading to an environment where you have got minimal guidance, where students aren't learning, aren't giving any direction. They just said, "Here's your problem." Go away and learn what you can from this particular problem. And mm. neurological. And, and if the problems with that aren't instantly apparent, then uh, do please whiz <laughs> back very quickly to our episode on um, uh, on problem based learning. Because, uh, and just so from the neurological point of view, what you're doing when you are doing that kind of environment is that all of your stuff that you're drawing from is on your working memory. You don't have any of this long term memory, you don't have any of that to draw upon. And you see you get to cognitive overload very, very quickly. And there's another paper, which I can't track down. It's really frustrating but it because I should have saved it or whatever. But it was it's something else I read recently, which is somebody was doing an analysis of lectures and this kind of transmissive instruction and then experiential learning and how that works. And the if you get experiential learning, then um, the achievement is higher, the students are more engaged, and, you know, there's – this was you can never absolutely prove stuff, but this was pretty valid, robust research. It was you know clinical A/B testing and all that sort of stuff, indicating very strongly that that experiential learning works. But they were saying the problem is is because of this cognitive overload that you're getting, then they're not aware that they're learning. The reason why people like lectures is because they're not using any of that working memory to explore things and make sense of stuff. So all of the cognition, all of that brain stuff going on is focusing on that knowledge, that the stuff that they're learning, the facts. The problem with doing stuff that's experiential and cognitive is that because you are thinking so much about what you're doing, you're not aware enough as much of what it is that you are learning. So it's not, it, it's kind of, it's, it's, it makes it more difficult. So therefore it feels like you're not, even though you are learning stuff, it feels like you're learning less than the other method. So this is probably a really good time then to address what you've got to do to make constructivism work. Yeah, because I think sort of by by sheer by uh, by the the the, uh, the issues that you've you've fl- flagged so far, I think you've kind of you've uh, raised some of the points. For example, actually um, flagging things as learning experiences, learning events, mm-hmm. so that uh, people are able to kind of uh, structure their approach in that way. Um, and also making uh, sort of experiential instruction structured in such a way as to allow people to focus more on the important components of using their working memory, the working understanding in that setting. Um, so they're not, for example, trying to sort of take everything in fire on all things at once and then bring it into this kind of this messy understanding, helping them to structure how they build uh, how they build those links. Yeah, I mean... You want to model that behavior. Uh, still, the most effective uh, way of learning is, you know, apprenticeship model. It's like somebody knows how to do it. They show you how to do it. You then do it. They then show you where you've gone wrong. But then also you reflect on why that happened. And so, therefore, you can then more, be more likely to transfer that to a similar situation. So that, So it's not – this is why, I mean, okay, experiential learning cycle works. This is why – Bloom's oh, taxonomy. Oh, we don't like him. Okay. okay, we don't like him so much on his learning styles because then he went from this Kolb experiential learning cycle to this Kolb. Well, each person fits is better at one part of that cycle than another, and so if you give them that task and gear it towards where their learning is, and it, that's just as flaky as 
you know. Yeah, but the second second albums are always really tricky. He's probably <laughs> you watch. He'll come. He'll, there'll be a comeback tour at some yeah, point, and yeah. it'll like it'll blow our socks off. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it's that tricky second novel or whatever. But yeah, so and again, it's, it's kind of criticised in this paper, but I think it's it's the kind of misapplication. It's set up. It's slightly a straw man argument in this paper because. It's saying, well, this is why experiential learning model doesn't work, but it's not. It's not the normal way that the thing that's being criticised isn't the normal way that Kolb is normally employed, which is you give people a plan and you work through that plan with them. You then re, uh, they then explore it and do all their own cognitive stuff and building on it, and then you reflect back. And part of that reflection is linking it to the wider research and wider understanding and the, the past experience. So it's not. Unguided. It's not minimal guidance at all. It's some guidance at the start. It's then letting them explore things and build on their own understanding themselves, and then coming back and going, "Well, okay, this is what you've learnt. This is how you can change that, and then this is how you can apply that model to other things." So, if it was a tin opener, it was like, "Well, okay, this is how you would use a tin opener. See, this thing grips this. You hold that together." There, basically, it's it's a it's a structured cyclical approach to open ended learning. Yeah, and. With any of these things, it doesn't. It's not one thing or the other. It's a mixture of these is going to be the most effective. Yeah, and I think this is where the idea that constructivism doesn't work is 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 a complete misdirection. Because of course, very I don't know anybody that would just chuck somebody in at the deep end and go, okay, you work out how this works. Because well, part of the problem, we, we both know people who do that. I think that's oh, part yeah. of the problem. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we've both had that done to yeah. us um, in personal and professional yeah. settings. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yes, I suppose. Yes, this is true. And also, of course, the problem with it as well that is pointed out in this paper is that you go away and you learn these things. And they're not necessarily, you haven't learned the correct way of doing it. So then you're building on flaky foundations. So, um, you know, which is why I think we mentioned in the previous episode where you have to unlearn things sometimes because people have learned from their own experience from a flaky model, built up the wrong model, and then you have to take apart that model and then build up a new one. Could I ask you to re-summarize, so just, just, to kind of, just to kind of round up the um, what is constructivism and how have you got it to make it work thing? Um, so constructivism, yes, is that whole building on what students know already and then giving them a chance to explore to some extent, but then also reflect on that exploration, guide them and give them a, a feedback on what that exploration meant so that not only are they learning the facts, not only are they learning the, um, uh, the, the, the concepts that you're trying to get across, but also they're learning some of those metacognitive skills about how do you go about creating your own learning? What are the steps you need to, to do in order to acquire that ability? So like for me and the, the microphone stand, it was, have you checked that you've got it the right way up? You know, so that, that is always, if you're doing something practical at some point, just stop and think if it's not working out, have you, have you put it together the right way up? And, <laughs> and that's just a basic technique then that you can then imply apply in future and then goes into your long-term memory hopefully uh, so it's important to have that level of constructivism in what you do because at the other end if you are just giving people constant guidance 100 percent guidance then they're not learning to be independent learners themselves they might learn a lot of facts and they might learn them really really quickly and effectively and efficiently but they're not, not given the opportunities to form their own um, connections and, and schemas and connect to their own understanding. And develop their skills to go off and do, be their own learners because they're not going to mm. be under your, uh, you know, in your classroom the whole time. You need to be giving them the skills to go off and do their own thing uh, afterwards. And it might not be as effective. It might not be as efficient. Learning isn't just about efficiently learning those facts by being guided all the time. It's about giving people the kit they need for their own metacognitive toolkit. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And also making it more interesting and fun because, and you know, efficiency and fun aren't necessarily the same things. But if you aren't fun, then you're not engaged and then you're not going to be receptive to further learning down the line. So that's basically the, the solution is, yes, you don't want maximum guidance because that's boring and then you're not learning as metacognitive skills. And also you're not learning to be an independent learner, but you don't want minimum guidance because that means that you're all at sea, you're lost, you never really learn the things, you cognitive overload because everything's in your working memory. Nothing then makes it into your long-term memory because all you're doing is working through this thing and you're not learning what are those skills that you've learned because you're not reflecting on them and you're not being shown 
how you've learnt those particular things, and so you just feel like you're not learning anything. Obviously, the best, most effective learning is something that combines those two things in a kind of ratio that you have to determine as, a, as an educator, and it, it's all determined by how where your students are, what age they are, what their previous experiences is, and all those sorts of things. So I think that wraps up what constructivism is, how it works, and what you've got to do to make it work. You've probably also noticed as well, if you've been listening to some of our previous episodes, that we're linking in some concepts that we've covered previously. We'll be putting a sort of a list of those in the show notes. I do really encourage you to go back uh, and listen to them, particularly uh, one of our early ones on cognitive load, which is is quite short and and links into this most relevantly, uh, and our one on experiential learning, uh, which I think is the matrix uh, that we're looking at one. So uh, yeah, if you listen to those two, I think you'll find a very useful kind of uh, supplement for for this uh, for this episode we should do an infographic on like the different pathways through these and this one builds on these two and that one leads i don't know yeah we, we could we could do um i mean i suppose this would be almost a like a constructivist map in a lot of regards because it'd be us mapping it to our own personal relevances uh, of pop culture so that'd be an interesting little exercise but also it's guiding people because then they could go well you don't go to here go there go there and not leaving it to themselves to so just explore randomly and building up their own map so it's kind of can be taken either way really there we go living yeah doing our living our own practice doing there we go that would be amazing yeah (laughs) okay so let's take um let's take all of this then into the next part of the show where we try and answer our question how can you make constructivism i suppose that's not the accent is it? it's casablanca (laughs) how how can you make constructivism a mountain more than a hill of beans (laughs) yeah yeah go about you Humphrey bogart is it again sam um Part two, the answer. Okay, so how can you make constructivism amount to more than a hill of beans? Well, let's take a look at Bean Dadgate. Uh, mentioned already that there'll be a transcript in the show notes. Um, <laughs> so let's take a look at uh, Bean Dadgate and how constructivism could have been used or more consciously used in it to um, make it a good learning and teaching event. So it starts off with um, the uh, the daughter coming to dad with a tin of beans. Well, no, wanting some food, sorry, wanting some food. Mm-hmm. So uh, he then basically gives her a tin opener and tells her to work it out for herself. Yeah. So, I mean... At, at this point, we've already kind of got quite a, a wide field of uh, potential interactions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't... So, okay, worst example at one end is... Um, Giving her the beans and the, the can opener, a tin opener, and saying "work it out." Uh, the other, the other worst example is um, is doing it for her and going, "Oh, there you go. Wasn't that simple? Aren't you an idiot for not being able to do it yourself?" So, I, ideally, what you would do is talk through the model of how you work these things out, because you know you don't want this, <laughs> this your daughter to be thirty years old and having to ask a housemate how to open a tin of beans for her. Um, so, um, who uh, and also, who is also the most dyspraxic person she will ever meet, and can still open a tin of beans where she can't. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So you would like say, look, this is how this works. See the way this clips in here, um, and then so, and you puncture that like this, and this is how you can, you know, there's a chance to work out through all things like this. Is that just look at how the thing works, and then here you go, and then you turn it around like that, and there's your beans, and now next to, and then ideally although they've been opening two tins of beans you go now you have a go and you try it and then you clip it and then and then the girl tries it and so that way then it's minimal working memory because it's like well here's okay here's dad talking again about being able to do stuff but okay i'll listen because i'll get beans out of it but then some practical experience because there's a lot of um what's the word uh proprioception learning that has to go on with that because you have to know Proprioception. Yeah, like the way that your hands and your body and all that sort of stuff all fit together. So it's like tactile and also body positions. And because if you've never actually felt what that grip of that clip on that tin feels like, you don't know whether you've got it right or you don't know what, when you've got it wrong. And that applies to a lot of learning is that actually, how do you know you're doing it right until you've felt it going right once? So I've been doing a lot of coding in Envivo this, this week. And you know, if you can, when I know now what it looks like when I've coded things effectively because I've done it lots of times. But when you're doing it for the first time, you don't know is this an effective code or is this not? Will this work in identifying similar ideas? 
And so it's that kind of recognition, that sort of awareness of what's going on is, a, a, is around in a lot of learning. You Once you know what it feels like when it's right, you can then got a better chance of knowing what it feels like when it's right the next time around as well. Oh, so it's give the chance to give, take the person, take the child or whatever through that whole process of gripping it. This is what it feels like. This is how you do it. And so therefore they've gone through that experience under guidance once, but then also you give them the metacognitive skills of saying, this is how you could solve this problem in the future, but you know, make sure they've got some food in them pretty quickly. I'd have said, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and an interesting thing you, you covered there as well is um, you sort of you scaffolded the steps. Mm. So you actually, in describing that, broke down some of the steps of um, of opening a tin of beans. So you would you would you know take them to you know this is these are the the various devices. Here's how you would position such. Here's what it feels like to turn it. Here's the kind of the pressure you need to exert, um, and that sort of thing. Um, as opposed to uh, sort of you know starting it with no information, you are taking the the child up through the steps there, as we do as we would with any piece of mm. learning. You would want to. You, know, you don't just go straight to long division. You you start off with how to count to ten. Yeah. Another thing, uh, so that you got in there as well was that so you've got the, the steps, which is having kind of the the guided example. Then you've got uh, the relevant experience, not the relevant experience. What's the word I'm after? Tangible experience. Yeah. Uh, the tangible experience, uh, and then the opportunity to get feedback on that, reflect on it, and then try again. I mean, admittedly, you might have a few tins of beans. Wasted in this, but then <laughs> beans are quite freeze. cheap. Like, You'll also freeze them, can't you? And they last a while and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I've I've never in my life thought, oh, one tin of beans is enough. Mm. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a two tin of beans man. So, <laughs> but or you could do it on two small tins. Um, but also, I mean, like we talked about before about how meerkats teach uh, little baby meerkats to catch scorpions, and they start them. They have a little circle, and then they put dead scorpions in there, and then they see how the the meerkats deal with the dead scorpions and then they put live scorpions in there while watching them and then they put live scorpions in there while not watching them so you're kind of creating there meerkats are creating these separate steps i think where that fails as a teaching example and i'm not blaming the meerkats for this because you know they probably don't even know they're meerkats stupid meerkats is that you you're not learning any transferable skills that could then transfer to dealing with i don't know something else that's small and deadly so, um, like another meerkat. So, I mean, this is one of the things you might want to do with uh, um, and take a more constructivist approach is go, well, okay, we've just opened some tin of, tin of beans here, but now let's see how you would go about tackling another piece of household equipment like, I don't know, the <laughs> I was going to go the steak knives, but the knife sharpener. But that's what <laughs> well, I mean, thing you want to do with a nine-year-old. Why not tackle the microwave or the hob next? Because that's, that's a good progression from tin of beans 101. Yeah, to, and, so, uh, and, then, tin of beans. and then they're learning the, the, the metacognitive skills about how do I go about solving this problem myself? I've just solved one problem. I've been shown how you go about problem solving, which is look at the whole, the way the whole thing works, trying different things. And then let them loose on something that is, you know, again, under supervision. So then you can go, well, you know, what are you struggling with here? And then mm-hmm. come back. But at least then, one, they've had the, the beans. <laughs> but secondly, it's like it, they're also learning that kind of metacognitive stuff about how do I go about problem solving? Because problem solving is a skill like any other. And you need to be taught how to problem solve before you can then go ahead and problem solve because there are different specific techniques that go with problem solving, trying things, trial and error, and those sorts of things, which as a nine-year-old, you're not going to do. But as any age, you're not going to know if you're just thrown into problem solving at the first instant. Yeah, well, I think that, that is, so that those problem solving skills and building up a person's metacognitive toolkit to turn or well, to help them become their own independent learner, I think as much as anything as well, there are other approaches that you could take let's say that you're a real piece of shit um parents who's would rather be smoking crack than i, I don't know how let's <laughs> roll back on this example in case we do have any crack smoking listeners um but let's let's say that you're a real uh <laughs> that's, that's, that's inclusivity taken to an extreme extent it's like well, we don't exclude all the crack smokers in the audience <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't, um, let's let's take a leap and say yes that's that we're okay, we're okay with excluding all the crack smokers. okay well if you are a crack smoker um then do please um then do please forgive me for, for any slight <laughs> but let's say that you're you're a little bit too busy okay. smoking uh, a massive piece of cracked cocaine yeah. to um to give your child proper care and attention you could alternatively build up their independent study skills by um guiding them how they could find information themselves or how they could find guidance on how to operate a tin opener for example um these days whenever i'm uh, approaching a new diy job 
my very first hit is always YouTube. Yeah. Um, I replaced a, uh, a mechanism in my toilet bowl based on a not toilet bowl, sorry, my toilet system uh, based on a YouTube video. <laughs> because I think every is, mechanisms uh, do you have in your toilet bowl. <laughs> it's like a little sword hat. It's like, oh, this is a nice firm one. We'll put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I've, I've replaced my uh, my oven element, my oven's heating element, uh, based on a YouTube video as well. Yeah, there's loads of really, really good stuff there. So perhaps yeah. you know, you send your your child away to look at, say, oh, you know, YouTube it, how to open uh, a tin of beans, and they'll come back, and then then from there you can pick up the reins of, of that experience and perhaps shout it along with them maybe you've um, not answered their question because you're embarrassed yourself because you don't know how to open tins of beans and you've been buying those weird little plastic pots all these years yeah i mean because it's actually not unreasonable that you know i mean i'm sure my flatmate had just had you know she'd always used ring pulls up to that point or something like that so and a lot of things do have ring pulls on them or hmm. you know maybe maybe she just was too upper class to never eat beans i don't know but yeah, I mean, so I, okay, I am. The, the important thing is that you don't necessarily that um, you don't necessarily always need to be the font of knowledge in these examples. No, as much as being able to connect people with relevant information. Yeah, and and also there's a there's a point at which you know anyone can do stuff like or that even if you're not intrinsically competent at something. So for me and my incompetence and things, my washing machine broke last week and I couldn't get it to work. I turned it on, turned it off again. It didn't work. So I went to uh, Reddit, I think it was, and said, what does an F01 mean? And they go, okay, it's something to do with the biochip, in, not with biochip, the BIOS chip. It's <laughs> like cyborg, cyborg <laughs> washing machine, um, the BIOS chip. And it needs to, you need to unplug it and plug it in again. Or, or okay, unplug it for 10 minutes, turn it, plug it in again. That doesn't seem to be much different, but I tried it. It worked. But I think one of the things as a learner is even if it's something that you're not very good at, the sense of achievement when you've – it's about lowering the expectations. This is something I've learned to do with my own mechanical DIY stuff is I can get the same sense of achievement from unplugging a washing machine and plugging it back in again <laughs> and getting it to work <laughs> than somebody else probably does by replacing the drum. Because for me, that's actually quite an accomplishment. And so finally getting this microphone stand together and it all clips together and like the elation from something that somebody else would have done in five minutes without having to buy a replacement and <laughs> that wouldn't mean anything to them. But it's giving the students that sense of, yes, okay, maybe this is something you find difficult. Maybe you find maths tricky. But don't put, always relate what they can achieve to something somebody else who's better at it than is achieving. Relate it to something that they you know, have, have failed to do before and now are doing. And so giving that positive feedback for something that you might think is actually pretty trivial is huge, I think. And I think that's a big part of of that constructivism thing. It's not just, here's all the stuff you need to know, reiterate it and regurgitate it and we'll test you on it. It's, here's what you're capable of knowing and capable of doing, and here's how you've extended that ability by a certain extent. So, you know, like, oh my God, that's amazing. You've not only been able to open a tin of beans, you've also worked out how to turn the hob on and now you're making your own tins of beans for yourself. Aren't you brilliant? You know, and I think that's the key part as well. I'm not sure we've actually explicitly covered it in the podcast before, but there are some interesting um, links to be drawn between uh, confidence and cognitive uh, function. Yes, uh, the sort of basically um, the sort of a sense of achievement, as sort of a positive association with things, generally makes for a, a more positive, a better learning event than a negative thing. So, people, uh, for example, people who are afraid um, uh, or anxious or sleep deprived or hungry. Or, well, or quite, I was just guessing to that, uh, have significantly uh, lowered cognitive function mm. in, in studies. And people who are hungry have much lower cognitive function in studies, particularly children. Uh, so this kind of links to the, the pedagogy of starving children, because mm. uh, in the UK, we've had uh, Marcus Rashford has been campaigning uh, throughout the uh, the autumn for for kids who would be receiving free school meals if they were in school obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic at the moment for them to receive you know some manner of food uh, while they're not at school because a lot of those kids rely on their school meals for kind of their significant nutrition and there's been a lot of studies uh done all around the world which basically uh, in fact i'll be linking one or two of them in the show notes which basically link children being hungry <laughs> with uh, with poor cognition and poor um, uh, sort of overall learning, uh, particularly uh, sort of school-aged children. I think it was 
children between the ages of eight and 12 in particular, it massively impacts their ability to develop language skills. So, you know, their sort of their home target language skills based on the different sort of t- uh, periods of brain development. It mm. can also impact, uh, I think, in early teens, uh, logic and reasoning, which directly linked to math skills. So basically, if you're hungry, then your English and maths, which are kind of the foundations of so much of your learning, are basically stuffed. So you're already, you know, you're already operating with one hand tied behind your back at that point. So I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, um, yeah, if you're trying to do a good learning event, then make sure your kid's not hungry to start with, because hungry kids don't learn as well. And if yeah. it's six hours, like if it's been six hours and your kid's still not uh-huh. eaten, and they're getting frustrated because they can't open the beans and it's not turning, you know, they'll have a good time with it, and you're getting frustrated because they can't open the beans, just have a bounty or, or a boost or a Twix or something just to kind of get you through, get the blood sugar up and get the... Uh, the brain working. I mean, the brain is a bit like a CPU. It literally kind of uh, under and over clocks itself based on blood sugar. Yeah. Um, bits, of, bits of the brain progressively turn off the lower your blood sugar is. I mean, come on. Ah! Sorry. Yeah, but one of the reasons why Marcus Rashford is aware of this is because he went through that himself as a kid. And I think one oh, of the really? problems... Oh, yeah, uh, I think... Was he I read... always a millionaire footballer? No, he wasn't, no. I mean, the thing is that you could be, you know, really underprivileged play football really well, and then end up with loads of money. And so therefore, actually, football's one of the possibly you know meritocratic <laughs> things we have, really, is because the opportunity gives to people who are underprivileged because they're really good at football is, um, you know, it's quite interesting. So, but of course, therefore, and, and the reason why the government is, uh, any government, I mean, maybe sometimes uh, on the left, people might have a bit more of a clue, but rare, that, that's rare too. But on the right, when none of them have an opportunity to, for this experiential learning. None of them have grown up like real people. And so therefore, they, they make, this is why they make these bad decisions. Again, it's constructivism. It comes back to that is that they are not, they haven't had the chat. They might have read about it in a book. Oh, you know, poor people are hungry, but they haven't lived it. So they don't know. I mean, I, I'll admit I haven't lived it, you know, but people who have are the people that should be making the decisions because they're the ones who've got the experiential learning. They're the ones who've been through it. And so therefore, it's part of their long-term memory, their core memory, rather than just some abstract concept that they may have read somewhere on their PPE um, degree, you know. PPE? Oh, they've all got these PPE degrees. I'm not, I mean, again, what? there might be people in the audience who have a PPE Personal protective equipment. <laughs> no, no, it's... Um, Physics, philosophy, no, no, it's physics. Obviously, it's not physics because none of them know anything about science. Politics, philosophy, and economics. Oh. And they all seem to have this one particular thing, which isn't bad in itself if you only had one or two, but when it's a perspective that's predominate, that's dominating things, well, you know, you need people with a wider background and a wider set of experiences to make these sorts of decisions. So, Mark, you also wanted to address critical pedagogy uh, in relation to this question. Yeah, so the video of that little girl looking at the... The reason why that was so refreshing, looking at her looking at this tin opening going, you fucking clown, is that, okay, I might be reading something into this, but this is where... uh, But what I think her father's taught her is to be critical of his approach... So he's she's looking at him saying, oh, who's a chance to learn something? And she's realizing that actually just giving her something like this and expect, expecting her to learn from first principles how to solve this particular problem with minimal guidance is an impoverished pedagogy. It's not a very valid way to approach this sort of stuff. So she is quite validly telling him that he's a clown for doing this and actually being kind of <laughs> with an extra uh, expressive sort of um, adjective to go with it. Uh, did you not think it might perhaps be uh, a staged uh, rebuttal to Bean Dad? Oh, it could have been. It could have been. But I don't know. I, it didn't sound... I mean, I know if I'd called my dad a fucking clown uh, as a kid, um, the video might not have made it to the internet. I'd well, I can't... Well, my obituary I wouldn't have even occurred to me. Um, <laughs> I, I don't think... Uh, so, but maybe... Okay, let's taking this at face value, and I think you've raised a very important point that we shouldn't take anything at face value. Maybe what he's also doing is teaching her to question those sorts of choices that he's making as a parent. And that is not only teaching people constructivism in terms of being able to interact mechanically with the world around them and and learning stuff. It's also, um, again, it's a metacognitive thing. It's taking a step back and analyzing the process and seeing whether or not it's valid or not. 
And I would say yeah. that's something basic that critical do. thinking. Yeah, it's it's basic critical thinking, basic critical pedagogy, and that's something we also ought to be doing as part of this experiential learning cycle, this constructivist constructivist approach, is to to actually construct within the minds of our learners where are you now about being critical about the world around you, and what advance can we make in order to help you be more critical, and then take more of an ownership over this whole process. So, yeah, okay, that was something I thought, and it was uplifting because even though, okay, now I realise it was probably faked, but it was like, <laughs> well, okay, there are children out there who will be given the tools to stand up and be empowered, and that is a brilliant thing in itself, really. Yeah, here's a nice idea. Um, okay, so let's see if we can wrap up fake. this question there. <laughs> I know, well, I, I'm, I'm really hoping it's fake now, Mark. <laughs> we need to get people's critical thinking. Oh, I'm so naive. Yeah, there oh. is a bit of experiential learning for me. It's like, Yes, but have you really analysed the fact that these things are made up sometimes, Mark? Oh, no, I hadn't. Okay, well, I'll put that into my metacognitive tool set now. Thank you, Michael. I was going to say, Mark, you're like every one of those Kirsty's home videos or you've been framed ones, like all the ones where the guy gets whacked in the nuts by like a plank of wood or something. Yeah. I mean, the camera was rolling. He was definitely wearing a cup. Nobody's just sitting there <laughs> over a seesaw. Of wood, themselves directly the under their nuts. Just to get 150 exactly. quid. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, okay. Dear. So how, before we move on to um, how you can apply some of this in your own practice, okay. let's just quickly wrap up uh, this section on answering our question. So we talked about how you might approach uh, this particular teaching event. If you're, you've got your own kid starving and hungry in front of you with a tin opener, uh, how you might scaffold them through the steps of, um, of opening said tin of beans, guide them through it, um, help them uh, go through their own individual experience, give them feedback and help them reflect on it so they can do it again maybe sacrifice a couple of tins of beans into it but you know they're like 16p each <laughs> uh, uh, we've also talked about how you could as part of this and sort of as part of their wide learning help them develop their own uh, metacognitive to- metacognitive toolkits with regards to finding information uh, and and trying things in uh, in the world but also in regards to uh, those metacognitive skills how they might bring in uh, critical thinking uh, and their own critical analysis of the pedagogies that you are uh, applying to them yeah, um, and also that uh, trying to teach hungry kids is a false economy. It's probably cheaper to feed the children. Yeah, yeah, and also let's hire, let's recruit, let's vote for politicians that have actually had some real life experience because they're yes. going to make better decisions because they've had a chance for experiential learning themselves. Yes, and what with them getting free subsidised foods in the Commons bar and whatnot, you'd expect them to oh be making God. better decisions on the yeah. basis that their um, brains are working. <clears throat> well, yeah, even a well-fed brain doesn't work well if it hasn't got the learning already embedded in it, I suppose. Yeah, the um, the current government are very much the, um, the the disproval of a stopped clock being right twice a day. <laughs> <laughs> they are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, clock with no hands. Um, cool. So let's go on then to talk about how you can use this in your own practice. Part three. Practical tips for your own teaching. What what are our top tips for applying some of this in your own teaching practice? So yeah, so you don't want minimal guidance, but also you don't want complete guidance. So with minimal guidance, the problem with that is that you will be overloading your students cognitively because they will all be trying to think through everything from first principles. You need to model what they need to do. You need to model that behaviour. You need to give it some sort of scaffolding. And then also give them the reflective skills so that all of those problem learning skills they've learned from that process can then be applied the next time they need to solve a problem. So you can gradually maybe step back and then start giving them problems without a lot of guidance. But the first times through, you've really got to, you can't just throw them in at the deep end. You've got to teach them how to swim first. Um, and then you can throw them in the deep end the next time. Um, but also at the other end, you don't want complete guidance because then they're not learning problem-solving uh, skills at all. That you can, and also it's pretty boring if all they're doing is learning the facts and then reiterating them. It might be efficient. It might be an effective way to learn the content of your course. But it's From not, a behaviorist perspective. Yeah, and it's not going to give them a long-term skills that they need to interact with the world. And it's not going to be fun either. So, yeah, so it's and getting that balance right between those two things, I think, is a matter of judgment. It's a matter of knowing your learners, knowing what they're capable of at that age and at that level of, you know, hunger and at that level of awakeness and all those sorts of things. And also in the part of the course. But um, 
but also you yeah yeah so there's no real one size fits all with that sort of thing and that's i think part of the judgment but it's going to be a mixture of those two things and from my perspective um it's being sensitive as a teacher and a learner to your um your students context being sensitive to the fact that your students uh may not be in a um an ideal uh personal situation for their own learning Mm. um, and thinking about ways that um if perhaps you can't support them with that then maybe you can give them uh the the dm address for marcus rashford yeah Um, and and also that you as an individual learner uh probably you know if you're not doing very well have a twix yeah and also while you're as part of the whole learning experience give your students uh, train your students the skills to reflect on how effective a learning experience is and therefore guide their own learning a bit more effectively and guide your instruction a bit more effectively as well because if they can then feed back to you about which bits are working for them and which bits aren't then this whole guess about where in this whole process this judgment about where in this whole process i need to be providing more or less guidance you know you can get guidance from your students on that if they have uh effective critical skills at and analyzing their own your own pedagogical approach absolutely okay so uh unless we've got anything else to add mark that's the end of the show okay no that's it i think okay so we've um i think we've answered our question let's wrap up the show Thank you very much for listening. Uh, You can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, uh, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can get in touch with us via Twitter. Uh, I'm at Pedagodzilla and Mark. I'm at Mark Childs. Uh, We hope you enjoyed the episode. Um, Well, enjoyed starving hungry children and online. Hope you've survived this episode. Yeah, we hope you survived the episode. We're sorry we brought you down. I mean, it's it's not been a great January so far for so many people. Um, and, you know, you're probably hoping to be more cheerful. But um, we're going to end the show on an excellent knock-knock joke. Go on, then. No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> uh, thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Bye-bye now. Bye. You know he doesn't say play it again, Sam, in Casablanca. Oh, are you serious? No, he says, you played it for her, and you play it for me. Play it, Sam. Oh, Jesus. Knock, knock. I mean, no, I, no, I you, should have done... Knock, you, you, knock, you say knock, knock. Knock, knock. Who's there? You, you tell me. Oh, shit. How does that work? <laughs> I don't know, Mark. <laughs> I'm, I'm completely in the dark as to what, what it is you're trying to... No, basically, somebody goes knock, knock, and the other person goes... No, knock, knock. Who's there? Death. And then the other person goes, death hurt, but I can't work out. Oh, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> I've oh. done that twice now. I'm really sorry. <laughs> 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 <laughs>